Acts 7, 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him rule over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. 
This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heavens, heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who fought, who, excuse me, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Of what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Lord, we come to you, Lord, having read this long sermon, Lord, its consequences, its impact. And Lord, there's something... um, of an awe, Lord, about it. So, Lord, give us, give us wisdom and discernment this morning. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. Allow us, through the preaching of your word, to see our hearts to grow closer to you, and Lord, to seek to live for you with our very breath and our very energy. Allow me as your messenger now, Lord, to be faithful to you, to proclaim your truth as you desire, Lord, for it to be understood. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A man by the name of John Fox wrote that famous book of martyrs. And in it, he begins by saying that Peter's confession that Jesus Christ, or Jesus is the Christ, the rock upon which Christ would build his church, so strong that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he noted three things would be true. Number one, 
that Christ would have a church in this world. Secondly, that this church would be mightily challenged and opposed, not just by the world, but also by the utmost strength and powers of hell. And then he also noted that this church, in the face of opposition, would certainly continue. And then he says, this prophecy of Christ is verified by the church's ongoing experience. Christ has set up his church. The church has been mightily challenged and opposed. Here's specifically what he says. What force of princes, kings, monarchs, governors, and rulers of this world, with their subjects, publicly and privately, with all their strength and cunning, have bent themselves against this church. And then he says, number three, the church, in spite of that opposition, has endured. What storms and tempests it hath overpassed. Wondrous it is to behold. When you look at the history of the church and God's providence and the way that his gospel has continued. It's an amazing story. And then he begins this book of martyrs with a short account of the martyrdom of Stephen here in Acts 7. This is what he says. His death was occasioned by the faithful manner in which he preached the gospel to the betrayers and murderers of Christ. To such a degree of madness were they excited that they cast him out of the city and stoned him to death. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, would be by God's design the one who would bring persecution against the followers of Christ. This is where persecution begins. This is when it starts to spread. We'll see that in chapter 8 a little bit later in a couple of weeks. But in Acts 7, we find Stephen on trial, standing before the Sanhedrin, this council of religious men, declaring the word of God and its Christ focus, only to be rejected and murdered. Now, friends, what we see in this passage is the following. Here's kind of a long proposition, but I want, I want you to see the, the impact of what's happening here. What we see here is how the gospel, faithfully proclaimed from the scriptures, confronts the rebellious and idolatrous hearts of unbelief. Now, friends, when you read that, don't think of everyone else out there. Think right here to begin with. Because we all are people who have been rebellious and idolatrous in our hearts and the faithfully proclaimed scriptures confronts that rebellion and idolatrous hearts and that unbelief there. And he, it does something. You're either going to believe it or you're going to reject it. It's either going to be something that is beautiful to you or it's going to be something that you despise. So friends, this morning we want to begin by just taking a brief look and reminder of the setting. Chapter 7 and verse 1 in particular. Stephen had been faithful to his calling as a deacon and as a follower of Christ. And while serving in that role as a deacon, he was ministering among the Hellenist people, in particular to the widows. And we can assume, based on the things that were said at the beginning of the, the, the Stephen portion, beginning in chapter 6, that while he was doing that, he was performing signs and wonders, healing people maybe, um, providing uh, some, some miraculous sign to, to help authenticate what was the most important thing, and that was the proclamation or the witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we found last week was that there rose up these Hellenist leaders who opposed him. And because they could not argue with him, they couldn't keep up with his defense of scripture, they used unhanded means. And if you remember, we, we saw they used fake news, they, they used crowd manipulation, they even brought up false testimony. And so now, Stephen has been brought before the council of the Sanhedrin to answer his accusers. 
So he's on trial for blasphemy against Moses and the law and blasphemy against God in particular as it relates to the temple. And the high priest, having heard the accusations of the witnesses, turns to Stephen and says, are these things so? Which opens up the door then to this response that Stephen gives. Now, friends, hear this. Stephen Stephen is on trial before the council, but Stephen doesn't seem to be affected by that. In fact, what we read in the sermon is that Stephen isn't so much giving a defense as he is making an accusation. He becomes the prosecuting attorney in the greater court of heaven. And the reality is that the Sanhedrin they are on trial for their rebellion and for their idolatry. And friends, it's worth reminding ourselves that when it comes to the message of the gospel, the courtrooms of this world might condemn us for our witness of Christ. But when we're put on trial, we can be sure that there is a greater courtroom that matters more. The truth of the gospel both accuses and condemns those who willfully shake their fist at God. So this is the setting. It's going to be quite a story. And you might want to have been there, except if you were there, you probably were on the wrong side of the story. Because Stephen is alone, and he's representing God. That's the setting. Now notice the sermon, beginning in chapter chapter 7, verse 2, all the way through verse 53. Now, our goal will not be to retrace all the details of Stephen's sermon before this Hanhedrin. I know you're all going like, I wondered what Pastor Rob was going to do with that. I mean, I wanted to be out, not just for lunch, but maybe even for dinner. So, I mean, that's good because it's a long section. This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And there's a reason for it. But what we want to do is we want to engage with it to see what it is that Stephen is seeking to accomplish. What is he getting at? And to that end, we'll look at quickly the structure of the sermon and then we'll spend more time on the emphasis of the sermon, what what he's actually getting to. And then we'll finally kind of look at the applications. As we're in this sermon section, we begin with the structure. And just to just a few words here. What we have here is just a wonderful outlay of the history of Israel. It's a history lesson that they are fully aware of. He's not telling them anything in a sense that they don't know as far as a history lesson is concerned. And they know it because it was written down for them in their scriptures and they were taught it as they were going up. So this group of people that he's now giving this defense before are a group of religious people. And this sermon covers really, I would say, five areas, four areas and then application. The history of Abraham to begin with. Secondly, the history of Joseph. Then the history of Moses, a big section there about the history of Moses. Then just briefly, David and Solomon, which would be the, the monarchy. And then we have application. So he's saying all this history for a reason. He's coming to a couple of conclusions. So Stephen's sermon is much more than a history lesson. It's an exercise in biblical theology. Stephen is retelling Israel's history in order to make a specific point about how that history anticipated the person and the work of Jesus Christ and about how his opponent's response to the truth is nothing new. So that's the structure. Now let's look at the actual emphasis of this sermon. As Stephen walks his hearers through the history of Israel, he makes two points of emphasis, two strands of biblical theology. Now, we would like like to have them, you know, here's point number one, boom, and here's point number two, boom. Much easier for us to see that. But what he's doing, he's actually giving these two points kind of, in these strands that are weaving through the story of the history of Israel. And he's going to deal with them both toward the end. But he's highlighting some things along the journey of this history to really give attention to these two particular things. Two emphasis. Emphasis number one, God's dwelling place. Emphasis number two, God's deliverers. 
So let's jump in now and consider what he's saying about God's dwelling place. And you might want to just put the word idolatry next to that. And it begins with Abraham. This is Israel's foundation. This is where it all begins in verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. We find out that was the land of the Chaldeans, of Ur is particularly where he was from. And so he goes up through Mesopotamia into Haran. And God both appears to Abraham, he speaks to Abraham, and there he promises that he will guide Abraham to that location. And ultimately, God says, I'm not going to give you this land. I'm not even going to give you a foot's length of land. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut a promise with you, and that promise will be a covenant, and it will be, be reinforced by the sign of circumcision. God's promise was that Abraham's descendants would be sojourners, in other words, they'd be wanderers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. That God would judge that nation and bring his people out and worship him in this place, in this land. And Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob who would be the father of the 12 patriarchs. Now, I want you to note those places that are mentioned. Haran, um, the wilderness, um, Sinai, right? Um, the, these, are, these are places where, where Abraham, so no, that's not right. We have Haran, we have Ur, and he's coming out from this place to this new land. Then we jump into Joseph. Here's Israel's flourishing. There's a problem. There's a famine coming. Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers, identified here as the patriarchs. It may have thrown you for a little bit for the loop because the patriarchs usually is a bigger group of people, right? But here are his brothers, and they, they reject him. They reject his giftedness. They reject how he's speaking for the Lord, and they reject that he is one that God is raising up to be a deliverer. So they sell, sell him into slavery, he goes to Egypt. God blesses him in Egypt. He raises him up. And when there's a famine, these patriarchs are sent by their father to go to Egypt because they find out there's food in Egypt. And what happens when they're there is they encounter their brother for the second time. And eventually, he is revealed to them as their brother, as their deliverer. All right? Now, while that happens, however... We're told here in, uh, uh, in the text here that God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here he is, Joseph, and he's in Egypt and God is with him. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees and he was sent to Haran and God is with him, speaking to him guiding him. Then we come up to Moses. And here we have Israel's formation. Moses is born into a terrible context, if you remember, where, where um, Pharaoh is, is killing these, these young children, these boys. They were being exposed by their fathers, we're told here. That was kind of a, an act of despair. But when Moses is, is born and he's put out, God says he was beautiful in his sight. Now, the idea there is not so much that he was beautiful physically, the idea is that God had something special for Moses. He was a chosen vessel. And as Moses grew up, he was in the household of Pharaoh because Pharaoh's daughter rescued him from the waters and raised him up as her own. So here he is in Egypt, and as he's growing up, um, he, he realizes that, that he identifies with the people of Israel and uh, we'll get to that story in just a little bit. But he, he flees then from Egypt and he goes to Midian. And while he's in Midian, after 40 years, we're told he's in the wilderness on Mount Sinai and he has an encounter with a bush. I never had an encounter with a bush. At least not a, not a flaming bush. I've had actually a lot of encounters with bushes when I was younger, especially when I was riding bikes and stuff like that, right? But he has this encounter. And in that encounter, the angel, we're told here, which we know is God, 
He says, take off your sandals. Why? Because this is holy ground. And God continued to be present with Moses in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, and then back to Mount Sinai where he gives him the law. And in the wilderness, Moses built the tent of witness, if you remember, the tabernacle according to the pattern that he had seen. And that pattern, if you remember, was was a reflection of the heavenly realm down on earth. So you might say it was a little bit of heaven on earth. And wherever Israel went in their wilderness wanderings, God was in their midst in the tabernacle. Okay? God was there. Then we have David and Solomon. Joshua is is mentioned in the passage that then David is brought up and so is Solomon. David brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, if you remember. He set it up. But then it's Solomon who ultimately builds this place called the temple. And this is what the issue is all about. These, uh, These religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're upset because Stephen is speaking about the destruction of the temple. And of course, God met with his people in the temple. So let's just back up a little bit and just highlight again where we've been. God was present with Abraham in Haran. God is present with Joseph in Egypt. God is present with Moses in Midian at the burning bush at Mount Sinai at the tent of meeting. Even up through the time of David, God had been present with Israel through the tent of meeting, but it was not until the time of Solomon that God's dwelling place had a fixed location in the temple. Now, both the the tabernacle and the temple were built according to God's will. They were both good gifts for God's people. So Stephen is not saying that the people were wrong in constructing the tabernacle or the temple. He's not saying that the temple was bad in and of itself. But he is saying that they're wrong to think that these buildings were God's dwelling place. See, the Jews had taken a line from the story of Aladdin, where if you remember, the evil Jafar makes his third wish, and he says, I want to be the most powerful being in the universe. And of course, you know, the line that comes a little bit later doesn't realize that the most powerful being in the universe is confined to an itty-bitty living space called the lamp. But you see, God cannot be confined to an itty-bitty living space. And so, quoting Isaiah, Stephen tells the crowd that God is the creator and he can't be confined to a building. He cannot be limited to a tabernacle or a temple. Just just follow what he says in verse 48 and following. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I'm the creator. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? You think you can build something and that's going to be where I live? Did not my hand make all these things? Now, friends, with the death, the resurrection, and the enthronement of Jesus Christ, religious space became irrelevant. Earthly religious space is all about access to God and a pardon from God and the presence of God and the power of God. But if Jesus Christ has won pardon for all through his death on the cross and therefore the gate of heaven is opened up because human beings can now be forgiven through Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is enthroned in heaven, then no religious space on earth is any more relevant than any other one. The temple has become an irrelevant space. John Stott summarizes this well when he says this, a single thread runs through the first part of his defense. It is that the God of Israel is a pilgrim God who is not restricted to any one place. He has pledged himself by a solemn covenant to be their God. Therefore, according to his covenant promises, wherever they are, there he is also. Now, friends, this is so important for us to understand because I think sometimes we might even struggle with this. In this passage, we see 
so clearly that God appeared, God spoke, God sent, God promised, God punished, and God rescued. God, through Israel's history, is working out his sovereign will over all the earth. Most certainly, he is not confined to a building. Now, Stephen is saying, your love and respect for the temple is to be admired, but God has never been limited to one particular place, not even in this place in the temple. Friends, this has huge implications for the religious who think they can contain God in the building. They have turned something good into an idol. The very temple now has become their idol. Just think about that. They had turned something temporary, the tabernacle, into a religious icon, some kind of rabbit's foot. Like if you go to the temple, somehow it's more mystical, somehow it's more spiritual. They could not imagine the worship of God without the temple. They could not imagine the place of God not being among the Jewish people. So this is a problem for the religious because they want a place. And this is a huge implication for the non-religious who consider that they can escape the creator by not entering into a building. You probably have some friends that you know who are not followers of Christ. They're atheists, whatever, and they are afraid to step foot into a church. They got it all wrong. Stepping into a church building does not somehow mystically bring God and his presence there. He's already there. But this is how the non-religious think. I'm going to avoid going to church. I'm not even going to darken the door of church. I don't want to be around that at all. You think you're, you're somehow escaping from the presence of God? You're not. God is not contained in a building. And it's encouraging, friends, that you and I don't have to make a pilgrimage to the holy site to find God. God is not somehow more present in Israel than he is here in California. Now, he might be moving to Idaho soon. I understand that. But, but he's, he's, not, he's not more present in one place than another. We don't have to go to Mecca. We don't have to, certainly don't have, to, don't have to go to the Vatican. And God's presence is not limited to a church building. Now, we at Gateway have experienced that in many ways throughout our 10-year existence. For the first nine years or so, we were at Creekside Middle School. We would set up and we would tear down. We would worship together and we would leave. And it would become a school for the rest of the week. It wasn't like somehow we would bring God's presence Now, we brought the church, and God was with us as a church, but it wasn't the facility, it wasn't the place. And then, of course, COVID hits, and we're in our homes, we're sheltering in place, we're moving around as far as live streaming is concerned, and yet in the midst of all that, we were still God's church. Why? Because he's not limited to a building. And by God's grace, we met outside in the parking lot. We know God wasn't there. No, he was. But now we're in a church building. Ah. Finally, where God is. No, God is here because his people are here. The building is a blessing, but the building is not in and of itself the house of God. My friends, he's fully present in all those places. It isn't the location that's holy. God is with us wherever we are and wherever we meet. So here in the church building, God is present with us. As we gather in our homes for home group, God is present with us. As we meet someone for breakfast or for lunch, he's with us. In the hospital, he's with you. In the cubicle, he's there. In the classroom, he's there. Behind the wheel of your car, he's there. In your homes, he's there. There is really only one place That is God's home. And that is heaven. But he's not limited to there. He's omnipresent. Now friends, do you see what's happened to Israel? 
They've idolized this place called the temple, and they cannot see beyond that. They can't see that God has, through the history of Israel, been a pilgrim God who has wandered with the people. And he created certainly the tabernacle and the temple as a place where he could meet with them because he is too holy, but he's not contained and limited to it. That's the first strand. This is his first argument. You say, oh, I blaspheme God in the temple, saying that it's been destroyed. God doesn't need the temple. God is more than the temple. And you've idolized it. Secondly, God's deliverance. Israel's pattern of repeated rebellion. And here, what we find are three examples that Stephen gives to drive home this reality. Notice, first of all, he brings up Joseph, right? Brings up Joseph. And what we find here is that Joseph is a deliverer for Israel. He's rejected by his brothers, as we've mentioned before. They sold him into slavery, but Joseph is blessed by God. He raises him up, puts him in a position of authority, overseeing the whole famine. And when Jacob and his sons are starving in the land of Cana. They go to Egypt and they find it's Joseph who is there. And Joseph then reaches out and reveals himself to them. He becomes their deliverer, not just with food, but ultimately providing a place and a land into which they can live. Then there's Moses. He delivers Israel from bondage. Moses was that beautiful child, a bringer of peace and reconciliation, and he too was rejected by his own. He had defended a fellow Hebrew, and he, he thought he thought that his own would see that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand, is what it says here. But it was when they saw him the second time, after a a long period of time, 40 years or so, he comes back now to his people. And now they see him as this deliverer. Verse 35, this is what we're told. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? That's what happened the first time. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Right? He's a ruler and redeemer. He's one who performs wonders and signs. Verse 36, he, this man testifies that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This man received the law, but instead of patiently waiting for him to return from meeting with God on the mountain, we all know this if we were here through the book of Exodus, although he gave Israel the law and the covenant, God's living words, They brushed him aside. They rejected him in favor of an idol of a lifeless calf. And friends, this is the habit of Israel, that they would brush God aside and turn away from him toward idolatry. And and God would give them over to that idolatrous worship. And notice what it says in in Acts 7, 42 and 43. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? The implied answer is what? No. You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You have rejected my deliverer. Again and again and again. And although God had given Moses to Israel as deliverer, and although God had given them the law, they they both rebelled against his deliverer and the law. This is the history of Israel, friends, rebelling against God's deliverers and against God's law. And if you jump down toward uh, the end of this whole section, we find here, in verse 52, that they rejected the righteous one. Of course, this now is Christ. And you see what Stephen is doing. He's saying, here's Joseph, here's Moses, here are these prophets, but you have rejected ultimately the righteous one. Just as the previous leadership of Israel has rejected the prophets, and ironically, the one 
that Moses spoke of that was going to come, who was going to be like him, you are rejecting this very one, this righteous one. Now, what Stephen is speaking against in his sermon is not Moses. What what, what Stephen is speaking about or against here is the cult of Moses. The idea that the law is the end all. Moses and the law are the end. That they are the the, the very thing. They are the pinnacle. The the law of Moses, uh, sorry, Moses and the law were etched into the fabric of their religion. But they deny what Moses himself said. A day was coming when a greater Moses would come to redeem his people. So rather than look for and anticipate a greater Moses, they hold on to Moses and the law as the end in and of themselves. Stephen is demonstrating to them that the law was not the capstone of God's redemptive plan. Instead, the law was a signpost pointing to the people's need for a Messiah. Now, I know there's a lot going on here, and I know Stephen is, you know, he's weaving through these stories, but hear this. Stephen is saying, look, you have rejected God's representatives over and over and over again. And what you have done is you somehow been transfixed with Moses and the law, and you can't let it go. And because you can't let it go, you can't even think it through. And when the prophets have come to to give clarity to your understanding or even listen to Moses, you're not willing to break out of that mold and think what Scripture is actually saying. So just like your fathers, you have rejected this righteous one. What Stephen is doing is indicting the religious leadership of Israel for not seeing how the, the law pointed beyond itself for how they could not fulfill the law. Albert Moeller says this, and so the people, not Stephen, had actually spoken against the law since they would not listen to the constant call of the law to despair of attaining self-righteousness and to be led to trust God's gracious promises for final redemption. They actually thought they could keep it. And they don't realize that they're actually condemned by it. Now we get to the application of the song. So those two strands, temple and the dwelling place and the deliverers. The temple had become a place of idolatry. Israel had rebelled against these deliverers. Here's the application. As in all sermons, when, when there's a bold confrontation given through the careful exposition of Scripture, the preacher is not intending to simply go on the attack and scold, as if slapping his hearers with the word is the end in and of itself. But he intends for the Scriptures to penetrate deep into the heart of the hearers. This is what Stephen's seeking to do. And you you might be thinking, and Stephen might be thinking, I am as good as dead. And since that is the case, I am not holding back. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to show it from the scriptures, and you are accountable for it. I mean, there's a gospel boldness in this moment, isn't there? And what he's doing is he wants them to respond to God's word with humility and repentance. So when Stephen exposes their hearts through the scriptures and charges them with unfaithfulness by acting just like their fathers, he's actually calling on them to humble themselves to God's word, to see their guilt, and to ultimately repent. And in doing so, they will be restored to God through Christ. Let's just read verse 51 and following. This is the application. You stiff Necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the, the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. 
This is a scathing word, isn't it? He's certainly not holding back. He uses three very descriptive and confrontational images as he persecutes or prosecutes, I should say, those who are testifying against him. This language comes from the prophets and from Moses himself. First of all, you are stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked means to reject God over and over again. In other words, to be stubborn. You will not turn. You will not adjust. You are fighting against him, always fighting against him. And this is how God describes Israel's constant rebellion against him. Secondly, you are uncircumcised. Now, you have to understand how offensive that would be to these people. Their circumcision was a mark of God's unique blessing and promise to them. And so the point here is that they are acting like uncircumcised people. They're uncircumcised in their hearts and in their ears, that they're not willing to listen. Third, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. They are guilty of opposing God, the Holy Spirit, again and again and again and again and again and again. I mean, it's amazing when you read through the history of Israel, just how often God's people say, talk to the hand, I'm going to do my own thing. And God lets them go. And then they receive the judgment. Usually it's natural judgment, the consequences of their ways. And then they come crying back to God. Right? I mean, it's just this pattern. And this is the pattern of Israel's religious leadership. God sent a prophet to expose their sinfulness. They rejected and persecuted that prophet. And when those prophets announced the coming of the righteous one, They killed him, and that's what you have done, he says. You've broken the law. You have rejected and murdered Jesus, the righteous one, God's anointed one. Now, I want you to notice something that has happened in in his sermon here. There's been a shift of the use of pronouns, and Stephen does this with great effect. Stephen has consistently been using the expression, our fathers, throughout the sermon, Our father Abraham, verse 2. Our fathers could find no food in Canaan, verse 11. Jacob sent our fathers uh, on their first visit to Egypt, verse 12. Pharaoh forced our fathers to expose their infants, uh, verse 19. The angel spoke to Moses and with our fathers, verse 38. Our fathers refused to obey him, verse 39. Our fathers had the tent in the wilderness, verse 44. Our fathers brought the tent in with Joshua, verse 45. God drove out the nations before our fathers, verse 45. But now, as he drives home the implications of his sermon on his audience, he begins to use the expression, your fathers. Your, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The implication is that there are two kinds of people in Israel based upon their response to God as revealed in his word. There are those who obey God and there are those who resist him. And Stephen is saying, and which do you think you are? Stiff-necked, uncircumcised, Holy Spirit-resisting religious leaders. See, idolatry and rebellion was the pattern. Israel wandered off into idolatry. They, 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 they turned to rebellion. Here we have the same thing happening to this Sanhedrin. You say the temple is going to be torn down. The idea wasn't the destruction of the temple per se. The idea was it's no longer in effect because there's a new one There's a new king in town, so to speak, who was working through the temple, but now he has ascended into heaven where he rules from. Moses and the law were there 
not so that we could somehow get closer to God, but to show our dependence and our need of the righteous one. So we turn now to the stoning, verses 54 and following. In this last section, we're given a comparison between the prosecution and the defense. Although the story kind of weaves together, I'm pulling these two out, just kind of working through it in that way just to help us see what's going on here. Notice, first of all, the prosecution. Notice that there's no further questions. There's no jury that's deliberating. There's no dialogue that takes place after the sermon. There's no prayer for wisdom or discernment by those that are there in the council. No, it is clear that they are choosing to do what their fathers had so often done, to ignore the scriptures and to punish the messenger. They're not willing to listen to the word, to humble themselves, to take responsibility for their guilt. They are determined to bring about unjust justice. And notice the three responses from the prosecution. First one is rage, verse 54. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And this is the same response that we read in chapter 2, verse 37, when we're told, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This word enraged is actually translated cut to the heart. And the point here is this, when God's word enters the heart and cuts the heart, you can respond in two different ways. In Acts 2, the people are saying, what must we do? Here in Acts 7, it's rage. It's grinding of teeth, which just describes their desire to devour Stephen, to get rid of him, to destroy him. They don't like what they are hearing. So the word of God has exposed their heart. But they respond with rage. Secondly, they're unwilling to listen. This is an interesting picture, isn't it? Verse 57. The mention of the Son of Man at the side of God so offends them that they cry out with a loud voice and stop their ears. Verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and stop their ears. It's kind of like that defiant child who covers his ears and starts saying, la, 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 I can't hear you. I can't hear you. That's what they're doing. But they're not doing it necessarily in that way. They're doing it in more of a religious, theological way. We can't hear this blasphemy. And so, so to stop hearing it, they yell and they cover their ears and they run after him. And that's the next thing. They become a frenzied mob. They rush together at him. This is what happens when you stop thinking, you stop listening, you stop being humble, and are not willing to consider your own guilt. You give in to your emotions, and you rage along with others, and you seek to take justice into your own hands. And finally, in verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stone him. Those who had stepped forward to give false testimony about what Stephen was preaching are now the ones responsible to cast the first stones at the accused. The person who is the witness are the people who begin the execution. So they take off their cloaks and they get get to the grisly work of this public execution. You see that the hardness and the coldness of this account, those who have given false testimony now actually believe their testimony to be true. We were told earlier in Acts chapter 6, right before chapter 7, that they were giving false testimony and they knew it. Now they actually believe the testimony that they're giving to be true. And they're willing to act on it, even to crush someone's head with a stone. This is hardness, friends. This is coldness. But this is what happens when we reject God's word. And then notice, not the prosecution, but the defense, that would be Stephen, 
And in Stephen, we see three things. First of all, you see his witness. I mean, there he is in the midst of all this. I mean, you can, it's one of those things where all this stuff is happening. I just imagine all these things are happening, but there's this oh, kind of just quietness and peacefulness. And what do we find him doing? Verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Friends, he was not concerned about the audience in front of him. He was concerned about the audience that was sitting on the very throne of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, we're told, and he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is, this is witness, friends. In the midst of what he now knows to be the, the last few breaths of his life, he sees Christ. And he testifies to that fact. We also see his humility. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, he says. In this moment when Stephen is truly alone and his life is at an end, he turns to Jesus and asks that his spirit be received. Whate'er my God ordains is right. He turns and he, he, he knows that his life is in the hands of his Savior. Such a short life in the service of Christ. I mean, this is the account that we have of him. But he's faithful and humble to the end. And third, we see his compassion. This is in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So in the posture of prayer, he, he, we see Stephen's compassion for his hearers. Yes, they're stiff-necked. Yes, they're acting like uncircumcised people in their heart and ears. Yes, they're resisting the Holy Spirits. But there was still hope for forgiveness. Maybe, just maybe, someone who was listening to his witness, someone who was there, who was watching his execution, would be affected by Christ and his gospel. And in the providence of God, we read something Stephen would not have known. But Luke wants us to consider. He just drops it in there for us. Verse 58, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. And of course, Saul is Paul, the Apostle Paul. He would be the Apostle Paul. And friends, this is a reminder for us that the book of Acts is about the continuing ministry of Jesus by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's empowering witness to proclaim his gospel in Jerusalem Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we're getting a hint of how Jesus' ministry would unfold through the radical conversion and the ministry of Saul, who would later be known as Paul. And friends, there's no coincidence here. This is God's providence at work. Now, did you catch how Stephen parallels Jesus' life and his preaching and in his death. In his life, he served with compassion, using signs and wonders as means to authenticate and proclaim the gospel. In his preaching, he unpacked the word of God, confronted his hearers with the truth, and called them to repent. In his death, he makes claims about the Son of Man, utters a final cry, and asks that his opponents be forgiven. I think we can be sure that when Stephen entered into heaven, the words uttered in the throne room of heaven were, well done, good and faithful servant. My friends, this is a powerful encounter. And we haven't gone through everything here, but the, the core realities are there is a group of people that are religious that claim to serve and follow God who are practicing idolatry and who are in rebellion against him, and they are not willing to be told otherwise. Even when God's word, the very word that they have, is unpacked for them and revealed to them because they're so steeped 
and the tradition of their religion, which has become the tradition of man. Let's bring all this to a close. Three concluding thoughts. Three reflections from this passage. First of all, I see in this passage that we have an example to follow. Stephen is the first in a long list of Christian martyrs. He lived a Christ-like life. He spoke a Christ-like message. He died a Christ-like death. But there would be many, many more who would follow his example. According to John Fox, James would be beheaded. Philip would be crucified. Matthew would be cut down by a sword. James, the less, would have his brains beaten out by a club. Matthias would be stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Mark was dragged to his death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul would be beheaded. Jude would be crucified. Bartholomew would be beaten and crucified. Thomas would be pierced by a spear. Luke was hanged, only John escaped a violent death, although he did have to endure a cauldron of hot oil. Friends, the call for anyone to follow Christ is to take up his cross. In other words, to be willing and ready to die for Christ. Have we forgotten that? In Fox's record of the martyrdom of James, we're told that James' accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone, so they were both beheaded at the same time. Following Christ might just cost you your life. We've got example after example after example to follow. Secondly, we have a warning to heed. The history of Israel exposes the subtle tendencies that can undermine our relationship with God where respect for God's good things can morph into superstition and idolatry. For example, think of baptism. When the waters of Jordan are believed to have more spiritual power than the waters of this old baptistry in this church building. If I can just go to Israel and I can be baptized in the Jordan, wow, won't that be a thing? Well, it'll be a thing. You'll get wet. But there's nothing more mystical about those waters than there are about the cold waters. And they're actually not cold. We've got warm waters here in this baptistry. But the point is we have in our ideas these, these things that are much more spiritual than others, Right? Or, or take our Bibles. There's certainly bad translations out there. But when one particular translation becomes an object of worship rather than an English reflection of God's living and breathing word, we're running very close to mysticism and idolatry. And much have done that with the King James Version. Or when it comes to a church auditorium, often called the sanctuary, we must treat it with respect, of course. It's where we meet to gather together for worship, but it is not a holy place. We don't take our shoes off when we come in here. When we leave this auditorium, we're not leaving God. He is here with us this morning, but he goes with us when we leave. See, there, there can be this tendency to brush God aside when we don't like what he's saying. So we seek to ignore what the scriptures say or we attempt to argue it away through dishonest interpretations. And the plain teaching of scripture turns into a form of spiritual contortionism to fit and to meet our own needs. It's a warning, friends, to us. It's a warning. We can be just like these religious leaders. Number third, number three. There's a mission to accomplish. Do we believe that Christ is still at work? Do we recognize that the fruit of our witness, our mission, may not be something that we are aware of? I think that screams from this text. That somehow, in, and in some way, unknown to us, God is drawing people to himself, using our lives, our struggles, our suffering, our witness, but we will know nothing about it. <laughs> I mean, Stephen dies, and he is in the shadow of Saul, 
has no idea. And yet his witness somehow feeds into the life of Saul. So friends, don't give up living for the Lord. Don't stop pouring into your children. Don't stop believing that God can do a work in that person whose heart is cold as ice. God is still in the business of showering his grace on undeserving people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Stephen and his example. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a text like this to remind us, Lord, of some of these important truths. That you are with us wherever we go. Jesus ultimately is our deliverer. And we must humble ourselves before him. You are still at work in our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us today with these things. For your glory, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.